Now, as we come to Ezra, I'd like to make some preliminary statements that will help us to understand this book. We've come now to the last of the historical books, but they do not follow ad seriatum. That means one right after the other. Now, last time, when we were back here in the Old Testament, we concluded with Second Chronicles, and we saw that the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity for 70 years. And we haven't had a word from them since they went into Babylonian captivity. Now, Ezra picks up that study. The fact of the matter is, we have now three historical books that are called post-captivity books. And three of them are historical, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Then there are three that are prophetical, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah belong together. Ezra was a priest, Nehemiah was a layman, and they worked together in such a way that God's will was accomplished in Jerusalem. And we have Haggai and Zechariah. They worked together and encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. Now, Haggai was practical, as we're going to see when we get to his book. He carried a ruler with him. He said two plus two equals four. He measured the temple. Everything, you know, had to be brought right down to the ground, laid out, and that was the way to do it. He's not very romantic or poetic, but he sure was practical. Now, Zechariah is a dreamer. This man, Haggai, had his feet on the ground. Zechariah had his head in the clouds. Well, Zechariah, for instance, saw a woman in a bushel basket going through the air. My friend, that's poetical. Haggai would never have seen that. And the interesting thing, Zechariah would never concern himself about the measurements of the temple and the fact that you had to have doors in it and a foundation under it. You need these two men to go together. You need the practical man and the poet to walk along together. And these were the two men God put together. And you put together a priest and put together a layman, this man Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah, they were the ones that built the temple and the city. And Nehemiah built the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilt them, I probably should say. Now, if you'll notice that the book of Ezra is a book that deals with the Word of God. In fact, he's one of the characters of the Scripture who has been almost forgotten. He's never received proper recognition. To begin with, he was a descendant of Hilkiah, the high priest. You find that in Ezra 7, 1, who found a copy of the law during the reign of Josiah and led in, actually, a revival. Ezra's going to lead in a revival also. Now, Ezra was a priest, but he was unable to serve during the captivity. There was no temple. It had been destroyed. But he gave his time to the study of the Word of God. We're told in Ezra 7, 6 that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. He was a great revivalist and a great reformer. The revival began with the reading of the Word of God by Ezra, and we'll see that in Nehemiah 8. 
Also, he was probably the writer of First and Second Chronicles, and also of Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, right in the center of the Bible, and it's all about the Word of God. It exalts the Word of God. And he organized the synagogue. He was the founder of the order of the scribes. He helped settle the canon of Scripture, and he arranged the Psalms. I want to say that we ought to pay tribute to Ezra. He was the first to begin a revival of Bible study. And isn't this God's program for revival? We've had no revival in our day. Dwight L. Moody made this statement, and he saw revival. He said the next revival will be a revival of Bible study. And all the boys have been trying to whip it up by organization, by methods, by using this gimmick and that gimmick. And some of them have done right well. The only problem is there's been no revival. We've seen no revival in our day. Tragic, isn't it? It's too bad they haven't come to the Word of God. Oh, pray that today the church will come back to the Word of God. Now, there's a great many references in Ezra to the Word of God. In fact, there are ten direct references to the Word of God. And the place of the Word of God is seen in the total life of his people. I read a letter from a poor Japanese woman way out yonder in the Hawaiian Islands, on the big island of Hawaii. And the cults have been after her. But in her own church, she has never had to open the Bible. Wonder what they've been doing in the church, making paper dolls, having lectures on sex, and on methods. May I say to you that everything but the Word of God has been taught. They trembled at the words of the God of Israel. It's the way Ezra put it in Ezra 9, 4, and again in 10, 3. Now, Dr. James M. Gray's made this statement. I'd like to read it to you. We already have seen that the Babylonian captivity did not bring the Jews to national repentance and so lead to national restoration, as the reading of Ezra will disclose. When Cyrus, king of Persia, gave permission to the captives to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, Scarcely 50,000 availed themselves of the privilege, a considerable portion of whom were priests and Levites of the humbler and poorer class. Now we have in this book of Ezra two major divisions. We have the return from Babylon led by Zerubbabel in the first six chapters, about 50,000 returned. And Then we have the return from Babylon led by Ezra. And the return under Zerubbabel you have in the first six chapters, and the return led by Ezra in chapters 7 through 10. About 2,000 return with him. Now here in chapter 1 we have the restoration of the temple by the decree of Cyrus. Now, I want today to get introduced to this marvelous little book of Ezra, and it's very appropriate at this season. Will you listen? Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord... Now, he puts an emphasis upon the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying... Now, will you notice, this is very important. This man Cyrus is one of these great world rulers who came to know God. He came to know God through the ministry of a prime minister that he had by the name of Daniel. And we find here that this man Cyrus had been marked out over a century before he came. In fact, he was named Isaiah, marked him out. And he came to know God. And he knew what he was doing when he made a decree and gave out a proclamation that the nation Israel could return back to the land. And we are told that the word of the Lord was fulfilled in that. You see, here is prophecy that was fulfilled. At least a fourth of the Bible, when it was given, was prophetic. And of that, a large section has already been fulfilled. This is one of those passages. All the things predicted of the first coming of Christ. There are those that say there are over 300. I've never checked that one out. But over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ literally fulfill. His birth was predicted. All about his birth. That's what Matthew, the second chapter, is all about. Fulfilled prophecy. Four things have been said about him. He's to be born in Bethlehem. He's to be called a Nazarene. He's to be called out of Egypt, and there's to be weeping yonder in a little town that's north of Jerusalem. And how could that be connected with the birth of Jesus? Matthew says, this is the way it is all fitted in, and that's the Christmas story. Fulfilled prophecy. Now, here you have fulfilled prophecy. The decree was given. Seventy years was up. They could return, but very few returned. Now, listen to this decree, because this is very important. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. I know somebody's going to say, now, this man makes the statement, he's been given all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, he was. Somebody says, what about the United States? What about California? Well, may I say to you that California was not a very interesting place in that day. Wasn't a kingdom. Nobody was trying to get the votes from California in that day. Not interested because there weren't any out here. And as far as the United States was concerned, there was no United States here. We were rather young. But all the kingdoms were in existence in that day. Cyrus was the kingpin. He was the one at the top. And he made this kind of a decree. He says, The Lord God of heaven hath given me these kingdoms. I wonder today how many of the rulers of this world in this so-called civilized day recognize that they are ministers of God, that they've been put in that office by God, whether they know it or not. They've been put in that office. 
office. God has let them come into that prominent office. The Lord God of heaven hath given me the kingdoms. Now, the thing that I want you to notice is this peculiar expression, the Lord God of heaven. Have you noticed that's unusual? It occurs here in Ezra. It occurs in Nehemiah. Occurs in the book of Daniel. But you don't find it before that. You know why? Well, before that, it was the Lord God that dwells between the cherubims. The Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God. Just a pillar cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's all it was. But it's the visible presence of God. And that visible presence of God left them. And you will recall that we made a suggestion that I came to the throne, the son of Hezekiah. Actually, he was about the world's worst. They couldn't have had one any worse than he was. His name was Manasseh. Apparently, the glory left during his reign. And that glory lifted from the temple. Ezekiel saw the vision. Lifted from the temple, paused and hesitated to see if the people of God would return to God and turn away from idolatry. They did not. It withdrew out over the city to the city walls, paused again, but the people did not turn to God. Then the Shekinah glory lifted to the top of the Mount of Olives, waited again, but there was no turning to God. And then the Shekinah glory was caught up to heaven. Not seen again, but one day there, walked into the temple, one that had a whip made of cords. He cleansed that temple. The Shekinah glory was not visible. He was veiled in human flesh. But he was God, manifest in the flesh. He laid aside his glory when he came to this earth and born in Bethlehem. But he's very God, a very God, and he's very man, a very man. But the glory was veiled. And they rejected him and crucified him. But you see, during this period now, when the Shekinah glory is caught back up into heaven, why, he's the God of heaven. And today, that one who came 1,900 years ago, veiled in human flesh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The important thing is, in verse 14, he says, And the Word, the Word that was God, became flesh. When? Bethlehem. Don't tell me John doesn't have a Christmas story. He does. The Word was made flesh and pitched his tent here among us. That's what it really means. He was veiled in human flesh. But no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he's brought him out in the open where we can see him. He came, as George McDonough put it, they were looking for a king to lift them high. He came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. And they crucified him. But he's the king. He's in Matthew's born a king. He lived a king, he performed miracles as a king, he taught as a king. They arrested him as a king, they tried him as a king, he died as a king. Buried as a king, he rose again as a king, he went back to 
heaven as a king. He's coming someday as a king. Oh, he's the king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And today, he's the, he is what? Oh, how important, friends, it is to see this. Don't miss it at all. He's the Lord God of heaven. Don't go to Bethlehem. He's in heaven. He's not in Bethlehem today. He was there 1,900 years ago. You're a little late getting there if you plan to go this year. But he is the Lord God of heaven today. And right now, this very moment, while you're listening to me, may I say to you, he's at God's right hand. He's a living Christ today. And he was born 1,900 years ago, a little babe in Bethlehem. And he grew up, became a man, and he died, but he rose again, glorified Christ today in that glorified body. And someday, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. May I say to you, there's a great hope the Christian has today. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear... We shall be like him. And today, he's the one that offers gifts. And today, he's the one that is the God of heaven. And our hope is in him. And you may look out at the world, and if you do, you'll be like Simon Peter. You'll begin to sing. But don't look to that. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. And my friend, he can lift you out of this present day. Now, may I say to you, look to the living Christ. He is the Lord God of heaven. And even this man Cyrus recognized that God had given him the kingdoms of this world. Now, he hadn't done that for you or me, I guess, not as he did for Cyrus. But you remember when we were back in 1 Corinthians, all things are ours? Life and death and the world and Christ and Paul, Apollos, they're all ours. They're all ours. And may I say to you, I don't know about you, but years ago in New York City, two little urchins came out of that seamy east side from that poverty-stricken area. And they came up and they were looking in the bright windows of the toys and the goodies and the Christmas thing. And as they did, they began to play a game. And one of them would say, I choose that, and would point at something. And the other one said, I choose that one. And another one said, I choose that one. And they just went down the list. Nice game. I don't know about you, but it's no game with me. I choose Jesus. How about you? How about you? He's the living Christ today at God's right hand. We're not talking about a baby. We are talking about the living Christ, the Lord God of heaven. Here in this book, he's called the God of heaven. And that is also true in Nehemiah, and it's true in the book of Daniel. He is the God of heaven. This is the name by which he's largely known in the series of books that we have indicated. It was a title he took when his throne was removed from the earth. And he gave his people 
into the hands of the Gentiles and sent them into Babylonian captivity. And as Hosea put it, he returned to his place back yonder into heaven. He forsook the temple at Jerusalem. He dissolved the theocracy and he became the God of heaven. And he's still that to his ancient people. And he'll remain that till he returns to Jerusalem to establish his throne again as the Lord of the whole earth. And Jerusalem will then be the city of the great king. Now, you will notice that this man, Cyrus, here, he puts it down in a very definite way. He says that he hath charged me. And actually, the word charge here means commanded me. He says, the God of heaven hath commanded me. This man Cyrus, through the ministry of Daniel, apparently came to a knowledge of the living and true God. Now, verse 3. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, for he is the God which is in Jerusalem. And you'll notice that God had commanded him to do this, but he did not command the people to go up. They were granted permission to go up. And he says in verse 4, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the man of his place help him with silver and with gold, and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of the God that is in Jerusalem. Now, there is permission granted to the people to return. And those that did not return, they were to make an offering of gold and silver and other things of value that would assist those returning to go up to Jerusalem to execute this command to build there, uh, rebuild the temple. Now, verse 5, Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Now, there was actually, as we've indicated before, a very small percentage of the people who went up. And I don't want to sit in judgment on them because of the fact they may have had, some of them, a very good excuse for not going up. But apparently... It was God's will for them to go up, and some did not choose to go. They had settled down in Babylon. I am of the opinion many of them were there on their lees, enjoying the comforts and the affluent society of Babylon. Many of them had become prosperous, and so they chose not to go up. They at least felt like it was not God's will or the time for them to go up. And it's not, therefore, for me to say that these people are out of the will of God. I do know that later on, the very interesting thing is, when we get to the book of Esther, 
we'll see the story of those who remained in the land. And it's not a very pretty story. Actually, they definitely were out of the will of God. But there's one thing that could be said here. There was apparently no spirit of enmity or a judgment between the two groups, those who returned and those who did not. Those that remained, they helped their brethren who went up. We are told here in verse 6, "...and all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts." Things that they needed, you see. And this is quite interesting to me. I do not feel that everyone is called today to go as a missionary. I'm confident I was never called to go to leave my land and to go to a foreign people. And I can be very frank and tell you why God didn't call me to go. I said to a friend of mine when we were visiting the mission field down in Mexico, and I said it again in South America when I was down there, I said, I can very easily see why God did not call me. And I do not mean to be crude, but I said, my problem is I don't think I've got enough intestinal fortitude. I don't think I could have stayed down here. I don't think I could have faced the slow moving of everything. I like to see action, and you don't see that on the mission field. Things move slowly, and God has some wonderful people on the mission field. Now, because God didn't call me and he didn't call you, that doesn't mean we're not to support, you see. Today, we should support these that go to the mission field, those that are doing a good job. And we should be back of them with our prayers and our encouragement and our support. And we also, I think, should remember those that are on the front, that are giving out the Word of God. I make no apology for it. I feel like that today I have a right to ask. Paul said he had a right to ask. You remember what he did in 1 Corinthians? He didn't hesitate to mention the fact since he was giving out the Word of God. And so the thing is today that God has called us to be partners in this tremendous enterprise, getting the Word of God out. And they tell me that in warfare, I think I've heard these figures, that for every soldier that's out on the fighting front, there has to be ten that are back of him, getting supplies to him, getting the food to him and the clothes to him and the medical care to him and also the ammunition that he needs. And so that, I think, is true in God's army today. Now, the people that did not return, they felt a responsibility. And so they became partners with their brethren that did return. And the group that returned, very candidly, were of the poorer class, the Levites. They were the humble folk. But you remember, we're told, the meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. And those were the ones who had the understanding of the times, and they went back to the land. Let me continue to read here. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. How did Cyrus get them? Well, there was a general before Cyrus. His name was Gabrias. He took Babylon one night when they were having a banquet. 
And they had brought out these vessels they had taken out of the house of God, and it was Belshazzar's feast, and he captured them all that night. They'd been put away, and the Persian kings possessed them. They were in Cyrus's hands. And God saw to this, and now these vessels, holy vessels, that is, they're for the use of God, are put back in the hands of the priests and Levites that are returning to the land. And we're told in verse 8, "...even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazzar the prince of Judah, and this is the number of them." And here it is. There's no use me reading it. It's practically meaningless to me other than this. Tremendous wealth is involved here. We are told in verse 11, "...all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem." Now, these were sent back now to Jerusalem. Now we come to chapter 2, and as we do, we see the return now under Zerubbabel. And will you notice this? Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into Babylon. And we find here the list that is given, and it's quite a list, by the way, and I'll relieve you right here at the beginning. I haven't any notion of reading all of this list. But I would like for you to notice the remainder of this verse and verse 2. These were the ones, we're told, that came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum, Baanah, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now the list is given here, and I'm not about to attempt to read that. That would be a real exercise in pronunciation. Hebrew names were difficult enough to pronounce until the captivity. And then at the time of the captivity, they really became difficult because you have the inclusion, of course, of that which was the Persian Babylonian language. Now, we had mentioned here a Nehemiah and a Mordecai. And I would like to say the Nehemiah is not the one who wrote the book that's coming up next, because that Nehemiah who wrote the book did not return at the beginning. He came up later, but not to stay, rather to execute a very important matter, and that was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then the Mordecai that's mentioned here is not the one that we come to in the book of Esther. And therefore, we just pass all over this. Now, as you go down through this list, there are very interesting things that come to us. In fact, the matter is, I think, profitably you could spend time here, and it would be very valuable to us. For instance, you have here in verse 23, the men of Anathoth, 120 and 8 return. There's quite a group of them that went back. Well, what about Anathoth? Well, this is a little town there. I've seen it. It's where Jeremiah 
purchased a field. It was his town. And you'll remember in his day, they were right on the verge of being carried away in the captivity. Now, I wouldn't call this a good investment in real estate, would you? They're getting ready to be carried away in captivity, and another people will take over. You could go bankrupt at that. And what assurance do you have of the future? Today, there's a great deal of real estate advertised, and they even say buy it for an investment. has a wonderful future. Well, Jeremiah bought this, but it didn't look like it had a great future, but it did. And that's the reason God told him to buy it. He says, because they're going to come back. And so the men of Anathoth, they had a deed, a sealed deed, a lawful claim to that land because Jeremiah had bought it, given it to them. Now, it was absolute folly in Jeremiah's day to all outward appearances, and I'm sure the real estate board of that day would advise you not to buy it, but he did. And you can read that story in Jeremiah 32. We'll come to it, of course, later on. So that's very interesting to read here about the men of Anathoth. They're going back to claim their possession, you see. And what a wonderful thing this is. There's so many beautiful spiritual lessons that are here for us today. Not only can we be partners, you see, in this enterprise. Some are called to go back and rebuild the temple. Some are called to give out the Word of God. Some are called to go as missionaries. But that doesn't relieve other believers. They have a responsibility also. And then here is something that's quite wonderful also. Someday we're to be rewarded, we're told, that every man's work will be inspected with that in mind. The Lord Jesus will all appear before the judgment seat, the bema of Christ. Paul told the Corinthians that. And in Corinth I stood. I have pictures that others made of me standing on the bema. Well, nobody judged me then. I never received a reward then, I can assure you. And I didn't get any blame either. But one of these days I'm going to stand before his judgment seat. And very candidly, friends, I don't want him to blame me. don't want him to say that everything you did was wood, hay, and stubble. It's gone up in smoke. I want to be a little gold there. And that makes it a very wonderful thing. Now, as you move on down in this chapter, well, let me drop down and read verse 41. The singers, the children of Asaph, 120 and 8. Now, actually, there were 128 singers that went back. You see, the spirit of praise was in their hearts and in their lives. So they had to have a lot of singing. Candidly, there were more of them went back than there were of the Levites. Now, we come down here to verse 62. Probably ought to read verse 61. It says, And of the children of the priests, the children of Abiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzilla, which took a wife of the daughters of Barzilla and the Gileadite, and was called after their name, these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. Now, they had to declare 
their pedigree, you see. They had to declare who they were. You remember the children of Israel when they left Egypt? We have them all arranged according to their tribes, to their families, and every man had to declare his pedigree. If a man came up and said, well, you know, I think I'm a son of so-and-so, and I think that so-and-so's my mother, and I hope that that's true, and I'm going to work at this thing pretty hard and do the best I can, and maybe I will be. May I say that at the very beginning, they were put out of any place in the nation Israel. You had to declare your pedigree, and if you couldn't, you were just outside. And this is something that today a child of God ought to be able to know, that he's a son of God. I know whom I have believed, Paul says. Declare your pedigree. Now, verse 64, the whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Beside their servants, their maids, there were 7,337, and there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. 49,897 is the number that returned back to the land. Now, as we come to the third chapter here in Ezra, we have the rebuilding of the temple. And actually, we should put the emphasis on the fact of the rebuilding of the altar and the foundation of the temple. But we'll see that now in just a moment as we get into this chapter. I begin reading at verse 1. Now, the children of Israel, that is, we saw last time under 50,000 returned in the first group. Then in the next delegation, it'll be around 2,000 that returned under Ezra. And apparently there are others that came in that brought it probably up to very close to 60,000. And there must have been several millions of these people at this time. But the majority has remained down in the land of Babylon and in the other areas rather than returning back to the promised land. Now I read at verse 1, And when the seventh month was come, And the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, obviously, there is a period of time that elapses between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We find that chapter 2 concluded by the children of Israel coming into the land. And we find that they brought with them a great abundance of wealth that had been given to them to rebuild the temple and to restore the land. And the people in that period apparently built homes, their own homes. We'll find as we go to the prophet Haggai later on that he rebuked them for building their homes and neglecting the temple. Well, all that period elapsed. And now we find that they come together after a period of time. Could have been weeks, could have been months, and it could have been a couple of years. Now I read here in verse 2, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, 
and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon under the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, there's several very beautiful things that are in this passage of Scripture. We find that they searched the Scriptures, and they found that it was written. If you'll notice this here, it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And when they found it written, there was no controversy, no difference of opinion. The Bible was their authority, and therefore expediency just didn't enter into it are the ideas and opinions of certain individuals. Now, this is a principle of all importance. This has an application for us. It's not today what men think, and it's not what men are saying, and it's not what I'm saying. It's what the Word of God says. The Scriptures are all-sufficient. They contain, I think, all instruction that's needed for the guidance of those who would be faithful to God in any particular period of the church history. Now, that's the reason that I do not give talks on methods. I do not give talks on these different subjects that appear today on psychology, you know, that's very popular, or on sex today. Now, I think that if we just take the Word of God, we look at it, and not just one or two chapters, and have a nice little study of comfort and help from one little passage of Scripture. Now, thank God for that one little passage. But I think some of them have been worn out at the expense of other sections of the Word of God. Now, I think that if we'll look at the total Word of God, that we'll find the answer to all of our problems, all of our questions, and we'll find it sufficient for direction, we won't need to read a book on how to get along, though married. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around today. Well, the Word of God, my friend, is the answer. Why not go back to the source and come to the total Word of God? Now, that's what they did here. They built this altar. And I want you to look at this altar for just a moment, because we are told here that this altar was where they offered the burnt sacrifices. It's the burnt altar, and that altar, you'll recall, speaks of the cross of Christ. The burnt sacrifice that they offered speaks of the person of Christ, who he is. You see what they're doing? They're meeting about the person of Christ and his death for them. And that's the place of meeting today for believers. Now, very candidly today, every believer should understand this. Everyone who names the name of Christ, everyone then that belongs to the Lord, everyone that is a baptized believer by the Holy Spirit into the body of believers of the church, he's my brother. And that one is one I can have fellowship with. And it's not a question now of the color of his skin. It's not a question of his social status or his wealth. 
It's not a question of whether he's a Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, a Nazarene, Pentecostal, or Roman Catholic. That doesn't make any difference. Important thing, if he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he and I can meet together and have fellowship. And we do, by the way. That's a very wonderful thing. Now, we find that that's the thing that is taking place here. And we find that you have this marvelous unity which should characterize the children of God. How wonderful it is. The psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant a thing it is for our brethren to dwell together in unity. And there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, this is an example of that. And these people have come back. As we've said before, they were poor. They were an humble folk. They were not certainly those that were seeking position at all. And these people were exercised to just do the will of God. And they were very humble about it all. You and I are living at the end of an age. And the great things are over. And it becomes those who really today have an understanding of the times to be through with pretension and this counting of numbers because these people didn't have too many of them returning. And they're humble folk. And in simplicity, to go along today with the lowly. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. How we need that today. We're always trying in our churches to do something big. With organizations today, always talking about doing something big. Oh, my friend, we don't need that. We need today to meet around the person of Jesus Christ, which they have done here. Now, let's continue on here. We read, "...they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's written." They offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, and so on. And we find these people now returning back to the Word of God, and they put up the altar. Now they begin to build the temple, putting down the foundation. Verse 8, Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son Shealtiel, and I'll not read all of that. And he appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons, his brethren, Cadmiel, and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God the son of Henadad, with their sons, their brethren. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Now, these people here have only put down the foundation. They actually haven't put up the temple, but they are so enthusiastic about it, so thrilled that they've got the altar and they've got the foundation down, that they're going to just act as if the whole thing is built and have a dedication service and a time of praise, and they 
sang praises to God. It was to them a thrilling experience. I'm sure that many of you will recall, I'm sure you're old enough to remember, many of you are, I'm sure you're as old as I am, and that goes back to the time, you'll recall, when many churches in the 20s just put up a basement. They'd buy a lot, they'd build a basement, and this was in the Middle West. I found it all through the Middle West, and in Tennessee where I live, there'd be a church on a corner, But all you'd have was the basement, and they would cover that basement over with tar paper, and they met down there. In fact, that's where the church would meet, all kinds of churches like that. Then the Depression came, and many of them were never able to finish. Actually, many of them during the Depression just continued to meet there, and that was their church building. And afterward, I understand some of them found out that that foundation wasn't satisfactory, and the lot wasn't big enough, and they went out into the suburban area and bought more property. So that church was never completed. Well, it was just a foundation. That's all that they had. And many churches met like that. I've spoken in many places just like that when I was a very young preacher. They largely, I think, disappeared today because in this influenced society, we have to have the very latest thing and the most modern architecture and we'd never be satisfied to meet in the basement. But these people did. And they just got the foundation down. They're just a basement church. Notice verse 11. They sang together by course, and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he's good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, notice, though, what happens. That was this younger group. They had never seen the temple of old. Verse 12, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. So that you had here two groups. One were the younger ones. They'd never seen the temple of old. And my, this was something new. And all their youth and enthusiasm, they're praising God. And the Lord bless them, by the way. And then there were the old-timers. They remembered the temple of Solomon. And it was a beautiful thing. And I have a notion, many of these old codgers, one would say to the other, Oh, my, this is nothing. If you could just have seen Solomon's temple. These young people are there, and they're speaking for their benefit. Oh, you would see this is nothing. Well, that wasn't very encouraging to the young, to be sure. And it is true. And that was one of the objections that God had to overcome was the discouragement that came to these people because of the old-timers speaking like that. And as a result, we find Haggai the prophet telling the people that the Lord says, go ahead and build. God's with you. And he was not in that temple at the end. The Shekinah glory had left. But God is with you now, and you go ahead and build. May I say to you, 
that a lot of folk, you know, old-timers discourage the work of God today. My feeling is that one of the reasons that this present spiritual movement is largely out of the church today is because that there are many old-timers that are holding back. They remember the old days, and they're not about to enter the new days. And there's a danger of us sitting in judgment on this movement today. I find myself, I'm an old-timer, very critical of many facets of this program that I see today. But let's withhold judgment for a while. Let's see what's going to happen. The Lord knows those that are his own, and he's going to get the wheat and the tares separated. That's his business, not ours. And let's thank God that there is a movement today and rejoice in it, not sit and weep and criticize in the present hour. Now, I recall that when I was a student in seminary, I had a little church down on a red clay hill in Georgia. And it was on a dirt road, and when we had a big rain, nobody could come to the church. Even the preacher just didn't make it sometime. And what happened was that I stayed over my first summer there, and we had a meeting. It's customary in the South, was in the old days, to have meetings. They call them sometimes protracted meetings in the summertime. Well, we had it, and they asked me to do the preaching, and I preached. And in spite of the preacher, the Lord blessed, and there were people saved. And I never shall forget the last night. It was a warm night. We sat out on these steps of the church, and a lot of the young officers there were rejoicing, and I was rejoicing with them. And then there was sitting there an old time. He hadn't said anything. He had long whiskers. He always looked like Father Time. And he said, well, boys, you had a pretty good meeting, but I remember when. And we heard all about when, let me tell you. And when he got through, our meeting just didn't seem like it was anything at all. And that was very discouraging. I remember we all left a little depressed that night with that old boy trying to tell us how big it was. And I asked a member of the church that was about as old as he was. And she said to me, she says, it wasn't very much. Said, you know, says he's in his dotage. And as he gets older, that meeting gets bigger and bigger. And she said, actually, wasn't near as wonderful as he thought it was. Well, now when we come to chapter 4, we see the retardation of the rebuilding by opposition. Now, the opposition here did not come from the inside but from the outside. And this is a rather detailed section, and I'm not going to spend a great deal of time in it other than to call attention to what was taking place. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezra, Hayden, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Now, I'm going to have occasion later on to call attention to the fact that not just two tribes return, but all twelve tribes actually return. And you will notice here that these people, they're saying that they had returned under the days of Ezra Hayden, king of Asher, that is, Assyria. 
had carried the northern, and some of them apparently had trickled back into that land. And they were mixed with the Samaritans at this particular time, and as a result, the Samaritans wanted to join up, as it were. Well, that's always been the subtlety of Satan as he's worked through liberalism. The very interesting thing is liberalism divided the church. Then it came along and said, now you fundamentalists, you're always fighting. You join with us. And because we didn't join with them, why, we are the troublemakers, you see. But who was it really split the church at the beginning? It was liberalism. Now, liberalism wants you to come back on their terms. And they said, why, well, we've been worshiping God here all along. And you folk had just got back, and you just let us come in with you. Well, believe me, there's no compromise with liberalism on their terms, worshiping the way they do. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house under our God. Now, they're not very nice, are they? In fact, they don't seem to be for the ecumenical movement here at all. In fact, they seem to be rather rude. But the very interesting thing is they were right. And that's the important thing to be. You can't always be overly polite. And when the two books come into conflict, how to make friends and influence people, that comes into conflict with the Bible. The Bible must prevail for the child of God. And then when you put in the power of positive thinking, there's sometimes the power of negative thinking. And these people have got a little negative thinking. They're right, by the way. And you just don't say, oh, isn't it wonderful? All of us are going to come together, and it'll be just great. Well, it wasn't. And if you want to know whether we're friends or enemies, immediately when they were turned down, they got off a letter to the king at that time, and they sent it to Artaxerxes, and they are attempting now to frustrate the building of the temple. And they have an argument. They say, well, you know... This Jerusalem, the rebellious city, they built in the temple. Well, Artaxerxes didn't go into detail at all, and so he made a decree that they couldn't rebuild it. And so the letter came back, and of course these so-called friends wanted to cooperate with them, bring them the letter and say, you're going to have to quit building. And the work ceased for a time. Now today, as we come to the fifth chapter of the book of Ezra, we now have come to this section that we have labeled renewal of rebuilding of the temple. We saw last time that the rebuilding of the temple was stopped by the opposition of the enemy. They got a letter off to the king, and they gave a false impression of Jerusalem. They called it that rebellious and bad city. Well, God didn't call it that at all though they had rebelled against him. It was a city that is the city of the great king, more said about it than any other city in the Word of God. And the enemy now, though, has been able to successfully stop the work for a while. It is suspended because of the decree. Now, these people knew that the investigation that was made was not thorough. The king Artaxerxes did go back and find out that there had been 
a rebellion on the part of these people. And at the very end of the southern kingdom of Judah, well, it looked pretty bad. Three times they rebelled right toward the end. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed the city. But now they did not investigate thoroughly, because though they found that to be true, they did not look for the decree that had been made to rebuild the city. Now, we find during this period, it was a period of great discouragement. And so these people would be naturally inclined to not only leave off building, but we'll also find from Nehemiah, they were so discouraged, they felt like leaving, just walking away from it all. That would be the best way to solve their problem. There's so many people feel like if I can just get away from where I am, I'll solve my problem. Well, that's not always true. I'll grant it, it could be true under certain circumstances, but you can't run away from your problems. So that this time, and we're thankful the people didn't run away, we find out God raised up the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. We've talked about them before, and very candidly, we ought to study those two books in connection with Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And in fact, Daniel belongs in the same package. All of these would be very profitable to study them together. And someday I may come to that. When I was head of the English Bible Department here at the Institute in Los Angeles, it was my thought if I had continued in that capacity, why I would probably have brought them together. It should be done. And here I am going through the Bible and saying again what should be done, but I haven't done it even yet. Probably never will, but I make this suggestion. I understand that there's quite a few ministers that listen to us and use our material in many ways in teaching, and we're delighted for that. We feel honored that they do that. But I hope some of them who have the time and the ability that they'll join these books together. Now we're told in verse 1, Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Now, these men were raised up of God to encourage the people to continue the building because they knew that there was a decree from Cyrus that they could continue that building. And so the Lord raised up these two prophets. And Haggai calls them the Lord's messengers in the Lord's message that he'd raised up. Well, these two men, as we've said before, were very much unlike. The only thing they had in common was that both were prophets of God. This man, Haggai, he's a man had his feet on the ground. He was very solid, very stable individual, one that you could rest upon. He wanted the facts. And he carried a measuring rod along with him, and he measured everything. Everything had to be all wood, a yard wide, and warranted not to rip, tear, unravel, or run down at the heel. And it had to be 36 inches to the yard. That was Haggai. He got right down to the nitty-gritty. 
And this man spoke, we would say today, to the conscience of the nation. And his messages were messages that went down deep and they hurt. That type of a man's not popular today, by the way. You speak the word of God today, you're in trouble. Now, this man here spoke the word of God, and he was speaking to the conscience of the nation. Now, Zechariah was a different type individual. He didn't have his feet on the ground. He had his head in the clouds. And as we said before, his tremendous vision. Just imagine a woman floating through the air in a bushel basket. My friend, that's way out yonder, any way you look at it. But it had a tremendous message. And this man, Zechariah, will appeal to the emotions of the people, to their hearts. And here we have these two men that God raised up. God has given to all of us a conscience and a heart. And these men now are speaking to the conscience and heart of the nation. And these men were the ones that God used. Apparently, Haggai was considered the chief, the leader of them. Now, what did they encourage them? Well, we can't turn now to the two prophecies, but they attempted to encourage the people to continue in the building. Now, will you notice? Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. Now, what actually happened was... These enemies heard about it. At the same time came to them Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shether, Bosni, and their companions, and said thus unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? In other words, what's the big idea? Well, <laughs> may I say to you that these men are not going really to answer them in a way that seems to be satisfactory. In fact, it wasn't. To begin with, these two men were enemies. I've never heard of these two before, by the way. I mean by that, this is the only place I can find where they are mentioned in the Word of God. And they are asking a question, and they are men of the world. And these people are not about to cast their pearls before swine. And after all, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and with no one else. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And Zerubbabel and his helpers, they didn't refer to the prophets and say, well, the prophets told us to go ahead, but they just answered a fool according to his folly. And they gave another question, says, what are the names of the men that make this building? They said, by the way, we didn't see your name on the list that was given to us. Maybe you got another list. And if you are part and parcel in this, we'll be glad to answer you. But in view of the fact your name's not on the list, we'll not answer you. In other words, that is what I would call a very nice way of saying it's none of your business. You have no right to ask that question. Now, that puts these men in a rather difficult position who are rebuilding the temple. And what happens... Well, they go on, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. And the wonderful thing is that you can depend on God to keep his eye on those that are his own. 
that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. Now, so off goes another letter to the king. This time, Darius is the king. Apparently, about seven years had gone by. The copy of the letter that Tatnai governor on this side of the river, and Shetharbaznai and his companions, which were on this side of the river, sent unto Rias the king. They sent a letter unto him wherein was written thus. Now listen to this letter. This is another one. The enemy gets off post haste, sends it, I think, special delivery. Under Darius the king, all peace. Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is builded with great stones and timbers laid in the walls, and this work goeth fast on and prosperous in their hands. And the thought in the letters you can see is this. Well, we didn't go up there specifically to spy this out. We are really not their enemies. We just happened to be in the neighborhood, and we wanted to drop by for a little visit, and this is what we found. That's the impression they give. And then they go on, verse 9, "...then asked we those elders, and said unto them thus, Who commanded you to build this house to make up these walls?" Now, that wasn't quite the question that they brought. You see, they shape it their own way now. "...and thus they returned us answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and build a house that was builded these many years ago." which a great king of Israel built it and set up. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven under wrath. He gave them under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away under Babylon. But in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God, and so on, and even sent the vessels back. Now, will you notice... Verse 17, Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so that a decree was made of Cyrus, the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning the matter. Now these enemies did not believe that there was a decree ever made by Cyrus. And they therefore said in this letter, that's what these people are saying, and that's the basis on which they are rebuilding, is the fact that they say there was a decree. And they felt certain that when the records in Babylon were examined, it would be found out that no decree had ever been made, and that these people were doing this on their own. 